0: Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and put them against each other inside the ring of Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metabolic. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. Me, I'm Superfly. Super Duperfly. Me, I'm Kev. <laughs> Hello, Kev. You yeah, Tim? Yeah, not bad. Cheers, mate. Not bad. Welcome to Album Clash, everyone. It is the second part in the last of our Britpop season clashes. Last week, I took us through Manic Street Preachers'
1: Everything Must Go from 1996. Kev, what are you taking us through this week? So I will be taking us through... Um the charlatans telling stories. So
0: just a reminder of the principal connection between these two albums, tragedy. Uh, Both albums recorded and released in the aftermath of the death of prominent members of each band.
1: Yeah, (laughs) it's as simple as that. Lovely stuff. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be a cheery old chat.
0: (laughs) Yeah, quite. Uh, Before we get on to that cheerful subject, it is your
1: pick for
0: Video Killed the Radio Star.
1: Indeed. So I went with not a Britpop video uh, this time, but certainly one which was one of the most famed of the 90s. 90s as fuck. Yeah, an absolutely iconic video. It is the video for Black Hole Sun by Soundgarden. So directed by Howard Greenhalgh. And essentially the synopsis of the video is it follows a suburban neighborhood and it's in its vain inhabitants who are swallowed up by the sun when it turns into a black hole and is notable for the use of visual effects. I'll put it that way.
0: So it's a really, really unsettling video. It still is, like watching it now. There's an obvious nod to the opening scene of Blue Velvet by David Lynch the picket fences, the sinister air of what's going on. But yeah, you've got the the weird, contorted, grotesque smiling faces. Mm-hmm. You've got things like the fish, the girl vomiting ice cream, the fucking dog. Yeah, like the the woman in the bath with the dog. Yeah, it's a really unsettling video, as I say. Apparently, the only instruction that how Greenhalgh gave to the actors was, look fucking psychotic. I think they very much took that on board. Job succeeded. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's another one. We've spoken about this a few times, so we are, as always, repeating ourselves, but this really capitalised on the rise of MTV through the 90s, in the 90s.
1: Massive rotation.
0: Huge rotation. And it's, so the visual effects are incredible, but it is quite dated, the color saturation is very very 90s but yeah it's as you said it's an iconic video of the time it's great
1: yeah i think i think you're right that some of the more computer generated effects so the black hole sun and like the weird blob that emerges from a like a pram after
0: the baby gets struck by lightning yeah
1: yeah that doesn't doesn't stand up well but like the morphing of people's faces and stuff Mm -hmm. that still works and is still quite disturbing and as disturbing as it was when I first saw it and it's a great song as well like it it, is a great song it's a belter so it's from super unknown their second
0: album in from 1994 which I would like us to do one day so I'm not going to go too much into it other than to say that uh, Black Hole Sun is the last song they played on stage together and only two days before Chris Cornell, very sadly, took his own
1: life in 2017. Yeah, and was like the, the man had an absolutely phenomenal voice.
0: He did indeed. It's a fucking cheerful old class, this one. <laughs> okay.
1: yeah. Bringing the, the the lightheartedness back again. Uh, great choice this, Kev. Really, really pleased you picked this.
0: Big fan of the video, big fan of the song.
1: Yeah, I've always liked it. All right, shall we get on to telling stories? I think we should. Over to you. So, Telling Stories, fifth album released by the Charlatans, released on the 21st of April uh, 1997 on Beggar's Banquet Records, their last recording for Beggar's Banquet. And really, I can't talk about this without talking about the background. Indeed so a, a little bit of background about the band really like so for example like i didn't know this the, there's a documentary that the band did about the recording of this album uh which is called mountain picnic blues that's a, in my head i had it as down as dusty mountain blues for some reason uh no mountain picnic blues so it's taken from one of the lyrics of um, with no shoes
0: it's on youtube it's in two parts we will tweet out the links to both
1: it's well worth a watch. It is a really good uh, documentary. So the Charltons themselves are—it's a—it's a weird thing because they're because of some friendly and some people who joined the band later that they're, they're always thought of as a Manchester band, mm-hmm. but a significant proportion of the band are from Walsall Yep, and the you know the West Midlands. So Tim Burgess, who isn't from that way, was recruited to be the singer of the band when his his band, the Electric Crayons, great name. It is <laughs> yes, um, a good name, isn't it supported the original Charlatans before their, their lead singer left because he didn't like the direction they were going in, which was more around sort of the Stone Roses sound. Mm-hmm.
0: So fun fact, Tim Burgess, he's from Salford, so he's the only member of the band from Manchester. Although Salford isn't Manchester, it's its own city, <laughs> but you know what I mean. He's Manca Jason's. Exactly. Uh, but he grew up in, in the Cheshire town of Northwich, which Kev, suggest, Kev alluded to and mentioned last week. Fun fact, guys, both Kevin and I used to live in the very village in which Tim Burgess grew up. My children used to go to school at the
1: very school Tim Burgess went to when he was a child. Yeah, <laughs> like, and he also worked at the big ICI plant um, for very briefly. Indeed. Um, so the band, the, their first album, Some Friendly, did really well and was was a critical and commercial success. The band was nominated as in the ninety one Brits for uh, best breakthrough artist. They didn't win, but you know, they were they were nominated and they were on the up. They released the second album, which was much more electronic sounding. Didn't do well. Was quite unpopular, but it's a good album between tenth and eleventh. I like it, but it it didn't sell well and it was critically reviled
0: largely. Yeah, so we, so that came out in ninety two between tenth and eleventh. So it's in the aftermath of the explosion of grunge. Never mind. And as we talked about when we went through, I think it was the Mondays when their final album came out. The world was a different place. People weren't interested in baggy in music baggy, anymore. Yeah. They wanted to. To his Seattle grunge and between
1: 10th and 11th really suffered from that. So in the run-up to the third album, Rob Collins, the keyboardist, he was sent down for eight months. So there's some debate, but he was involved in an armed robbery. So Rob Collins' contention was that he was just driving his mate. His mate went in, committed an armed robbery. He didn't know it was going to happen. And then... He heard a gun go off, his mate legged it out, and they drove off. Obviously, the initial charge was that he was he was involved in the armed robbery. It was eventually downgraded. And so he, he served eight months for it being an accessory.
0: He served four months of an eight-month sentence. And as you said, he pleaded guilty to assisting an offender after an offence, because his defense of, I didn't know what he was doing, was accepted by the court, we have to say that. But yes, it was um not ideal for the band who was trying to recover from the commercial and critical disappointments of their second album.
1: And yeah, it was it was in the run-up to and during the recording of their third album that this occurred and he was sent down. So after he finished his sentence, um he was on top of the pops one week later. <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> Possibly with some people who were presenting who probably should have been in prison at that time.
0: Operation U Tree.
1: <laughs> uh, I'm leaving that there. <laughs> yeah, look, I'm not. I'm not saying he was. He was on at that time. So the third album did all right, and it was the band coming back, finding an audience. And I suppose that when the third album came out, that this it was the the start of Britpop. It's the start of that period, and. There was an audience for them again, and it had a, it had a harder sound to it as well. The third album,
0: definitely. So that, glad you said that. Something I want to pick up on the, the sound of Up to Our Hips, which is the name of the third album. It's much more sort of blues rock, country influenced than the psychedelic, baggy sound of Some Friendly. The the more electronic sound of of between tenth and eleventh. And that sound, as Kev said, struck a chord with audiences at the the sort of onset of the Britpop era. And it's a sound that they're really stuck with for the next two albums, including the one we're going to go through now, Telling Stories, really. It sort of defined them for the next five years, really.
1: Yeah, and the the next album, The Charlatans, went in at number one and was really successful. The, The band was getting increased media attention much more radio play they were on you know they were on the radio on a list and stuff like that this is a band on the up and it was thought that their next album what became telling stories was going to be the album that would break them huge that they would go stratospheric because they this was a band that had recovered and were on the up one of the important things that sort of came out of the the sessions for the Charlatans album was the band basically binned off their producer halfway through and found that it actually worked much better for them. So when it came to recording, telling stories, they produced it themselves, essentially alongside an engineer. So after touring the Charlatans album, the band decamped to, and this is obviously important, mono valley studios around monmouthshire in in wales
0: so we've mentioned mono valley before it is the studio which is adjacent to rockfield so that was also the studio that they had recorded the charlatans in and in that documentary that kev mentioned earlier mark collins the guitarist said that was the place that had the soul for us there was nobody there we just had the run of a couple of acres it felt like our studio it was special it just felt right so yeah, there was obviously a place that they felt suited them well, especially given the success of, of the Charlatans album.
1: Yeah, it had good vibes, it had good mojo about it. The the band was happy, was content there. And at this, at this point, they were, and not to do a pun, but to use a title of a future Tim Burgess album, they were simpatico. They were together, they were in... They were in unison.
0: That's actually a future Charlatans album, but anyway,
1: <laughs> well, technically a Tim Burgess album as he's on it.
0: Yeah, fair point. Okay.
1: <laughs> now, I am going to speak about Rob Collins. Now, so within the the documentary, he's described by their tour manager as one of the most unpredictable people he'd ever met, and Rob was, you know, he, he had it. He had his demons. The band were known to be drinkers. They also partook in other substances as well. And it began to have an impact on on the recording process at Mono Valley. And, you know, Rob, it's talked about in the documentary, he was having a tough time. He was struggling with drug addiction and alcohol, and he had his demons and... Members of the band, you know, talk about that. He never really recovered from that period of being in prison. And he came out and he was much darker. Yes. Yeah, so,
0: and- J- so, J- so John Brooks, sorry to cut you off. So John Brooks in that, it says when he came out, he was a completely different person that went in. Um, Tim Burgess said it definitely didn't make him any better. When he came back, he was more into harder drugs. He seemed to be interested in things like buying rifles, taking on these different personas. It was quite weird. So It definitely had a tragically lasting impact on him, his time serving at at Her Majesty's pleasure.
1: So, whilst the sessions hadn't become fractious, there'd been some tensions, you can put it that way. So, there was a decision to have a night night out in the vast metropolis, which was Monmouth.
0: (laughs) It's quite a nice town, Monmouth, you know.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but, you know essentially some of the band went down the pub
0: <laughs> Yeah, well, exactly.
1: because yeah. <laughs> that's all that was there
0: so this is the same town that liam gallagher infamously went to which led to the fight we talked about when we went through morning glory
1: <laughs> the cricket bat fight yes the
0: cricket fight yes exactly
1: so some of the bands went to the pub had some had some drinks and stuff like that and you know they were they finished up and they were going to return back to the studio through Happenstance Rob Collins ended up driving himself back because Tim Burgess's girlfriend turned up and some of the other band members got in with her to show her the way back to the studio so Rob drives on his own and gets into an accident which kill which kills him indeed so quote from Tim Burgess
0: so he was in the the car with his girlfriend which was leading the way as Kev said I remember seeing headlights in the back that we all thought was Rob. All of a sudden, those headlights disappearing. It was windy roads, so we didn't really think anything of it. Apart from maybe he'd turn around to go and get some cigs or gone to the off-license liquor store, for those listeners in America. And then he just didn't come back.
1: Yeah, and when the autopsy occurred after the investigation into the accident showed that Collins had consumed a sizable amount of alcohol, and was not wearing a seatbelt when he crashed.
0: If I'm right, the investigation concluded that had he been wearing a seatbelt, he would probably have survived.
1: Yeah, that's that's correct. Um, he died from head injuries on the roadside shortly after the accident, having been thrown through the sunroof. You know. And so the band didn't really know what to do next. So that occurred on the 22nd of July, 96. The band sort of reeled from it. And a week about a week later, they sort of met up, and talked about what they were going to do next. As Tim has has mentioned in the previous Clash, um, they were due to support Oasis at Networth relatively soon, and they had no idea what to do. They talked amongst the band, and they decided they would go on. So a press statement was released by the band, and I think it's great. Yeah. There will be no change. We are fucking rock. We've lost our mate. Boom. That's it. And, you know, it said everything they needed to say. And so I,
0: I'm sorry, really sorry to interrupt you. I remember buying the NME that week and that statement was, I think it was on the front page, you know, or if it wasn't on mm-hmm. the front page, it was very early on. And, um, well, exactly that. It was rock and roll. Come on.
1: Yeah. And they obviously had a gig to do at Nebworth, which was the biggest thing ever. <laughs> They brought Martin Duffy, who we have spoken of before. He of pissing on the ceiling fame. (laughs) The keyboardist from uh, (laughs) Primal Scream. And he came in to, to support them, to play Rob Collins' bit at Nedworth and to help him finish the album. So Nedworth, of all places, was their comeback show after this huge tragedy. And... It's quite clear from reading and seeing what the band has to say about it is that Nebworth was a huge catharsis for them. Definitely, that being able to perform helped them to move on and deal with with what had happened to their mate.
0: So, I just want to read uh, another quote from Tim Burgess. He said, "As soon as the helicopter touched the ground, everyone's mood just flipped into extreme focus." I didn't know if we were going to completely crumble on stage or show people that we could survive without our star player. And that's what we did. And we tore it up. It definitely felt like something was over and it was, but we gave a performance that was so real and so compelling that it allowed us to continue for however long it's been since then. That moment was just the biggest adrenaline rush I've ever experienced. And then I spent the next 10 years in mourning.
1: And Liam Gallagher, in a moment of humanity, um, not being a end at that time, <laughs> on the introduction to the song Cast No Shadow just before he performs it, he dedicates the song to Rob Collins and says, live forever, mate. Yes. Good on you, Liam. Fair play, indeed. So a lot of the songs had been completed, or almost completed, but Martin Duffy was required to contribute to the album as not all of them were finished and still required some some work and so he contributed and filled in for the for the bits that that needed needed to be done and he he filled in for a bit for about six months until the band mm. found a permanent replacement which was tony rogers he was a young lad from the town that one of the band was was from
0: down the road from from where rob collins was from in fact
1: indeed and so the band the band moved on after after that but they never returned to Monmo Valley to record. And you know, you can understand that.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So yeah, that's the background to the recording. It was a very tragic background. But this is this is an album that had a pivotal role in the development of the band.
0: I tell you what, mate, I'm gonna really fucking struggle with getting Twitter clips from, <laughs> from these two
1: shows. <laughs> yeah, it's been, the the heavy heavy um heavy, heavy go is but
0: Listen at least in at least in our in our life these were important albums and important bands and important things that, that happened in our develop anyway sorry mm-hmm. i'll be quiet now
1: okay so should we um talk about the cover yeah we should so i didn't realize this it's actually a photo montage so i
0: did realize this because i bought the album when it came out sorry to spoil what's going on but you can actually see the individual images in the album sleeve
1: yeah like so it is, it is a photo montage. It was individual photos that were put together by Tom Sheehan. And what I'd say about it, Tim Burgess, don't dye your hair blonde and look like um, Toad from Mario, because <laughs> there's your clip for you. Um, if anyone doesn't know, well,
0: you must, Tim Burgess saved lockdown for us all with his listening party. So we all know what it looks like now, but yeah, Tim Sort your fucking hair up, mate, because you look cool as fuck back in 96. He
1: looks so good on the front of the <laughs> front of that album. It's like at what point did you think having a bleach blonde bowlie cut was a good idea? When he lived in LA. Yeah. <laughs> that might be might have been a good idea in LA, but it, you look like Toad. <laughs> exactly. Um
0: to, to to put my serious face back on for a second, it is a necessarily Simple album. So if we talked about this with Everything Must Go actually last week, there was a great similarity between the two album covers because you can't be too brash. You can't be too out there, I suppose, for want of a better phrase. So a simple image of the four band members. I, th- I actually think it's really cleverly put together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because um, it looks as though it is a, a as a single photograph. Yeah, it, do- it doesn't look like a montage. No, it doesn't. But yeah, a simple image of the band, the charlatans telling stories, again, quite a nice font. <laughs> not quite as yeah. nice, perhaps not quite as good as Everything Must Go, but you know, it's um, it's a decent font. A decent typeface. See, I, you got me into it now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, it doesn't need to be anything more than that. And they've never been a band for really extravagant album covers anyway. But yeah, it's... Everything it needs to be, that album cover.
1: Well, yeah, and (laughs) like, as you say, they're not a band for an extravagant album cover. I mean, the one after is the photograph of a greasy spoon in Northwich. Indeed.
0: (laughs) You know, so. A greasy spoon in Northwich, which has now been renamed after the album. Indeed. So sorry, we've been really cryptic here. So the follow-up was a best of called Melting Pot, the cover image was a photo of a greatest food cafe, called, which was called the Weaver Vale Cafe. Indeed. In Northwich. It is now called the Melting Pot Cafe after that album. It is. Big so, Northwich chat on this episode. I know. So uh, this is defo going on
1: Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Mitch Ash is going to be a buzz. <laughs> so, Tim, how did you first come across
0: the album? I remember songs like The Only One I Know coming out in the early 90s. I really got into The Charlatans when the self-titled album came out in 95. So I bought that and then was sort of on top of what was going on. Knew about Rob Collins' death, as I said, bought The Enemy. And then I heard One to Another and fuck. So as soon as this album came out, I'm going out and buying it straight away so not only did I buy it on the week of release I bought it on the day of release how about you
1: wow so yeah um I'd lived relatively close to <laughs> so we're gonna have big northwich chat again so I'd lived relatively close there and the main record shop within the town amiga records at the time obviously they were the big they were big bands that was linked to the town so yeah, yeah i'd I'd heard heard loads of their stuff um I will hold my hand up and say I didn't buy it on the day of release as as you did, but I I bought it relatively soon after from Amiga Records. So, yeah, it's an album I'm very much... have had a long history with. Right. Okay, should we... um, Yeah, should we get into it then? Yeah, let's. So, we open with the opening song, With No Shoes. So, in relation to, to the album... Three of the songs were influenced by the breakup of Tim's relationship with a girlfriend at the at the time. I mean, he has quoted three songs.
0: I think there's a lot more than three songs oh God, on this yeah. album influenced by the breakup of a relationship.
1: Yeah, but certainly um, this this one with no shoes. He he admits that that it was related to that breakup. Also of interest, the Tom Rowlands of Chemical Brothers fame, Mm -hmm. uh, assisted with the loops on this song, amongst others on the album, which we we will get to. Well, what do you think of the opener?
0: I think it is brilliant.
1: It's Tim Burgess at his snarling
0: best. It's really hard when you sing along to a charlatan song not to sort of affect a Tim Burgess-style voice. (laughs) And this is no exception. So. Amongst the influences in this album, you you know, Bob Dylan, the Rolling Stones, you can definitely hear that on this track.
1: So yeah, inter- like so interestingly, when they were again on that on the documentary, they talked about the influences, and you can hear a lot of these um within it. So Slying the Family Stone, Dylan, mm-hmm. not necessarily within this song, but ac- across the album. Chemical Brothers, Funkadelic, The Beach Boys, Graham Parsons. And certainly like y- you can hear D- you can hear Dylan in this.
0: So one of the things I've always liked about the charlatans and and about Tim Burgess' lyrics is that they're very rarely on the nose, if you know what I mean. There's there's a really good Mm -hmm. use of metaphors throughout. And I think this song exemplifies that. Just in the, in the, the very opening of the song, stone me, may you always have no shoes, and I'd rather just for you be in a taxi driving miles from here. I've been walking with no shoes. Fill my kidneys up with booze. Today, I'm killing you. I mean, that to me is the rigors of being in a relationship which is no longer working. It is feeling tired. It is feeling like you want to be anywhere else but where you are. But it's done in such a poetic way. I really mm-hmm. like this song.
1: Yeah. And I mean, the, the I'm going to return back to these themes in terms of the music. The guitar works lovely. The drumming is fantastic, and Rob Collins' organ organ work is, is just great. It's yeah. it's so good.
0: It is. So, despite the subject of the song, I think it's a really upbeat start to the album.
1: Yeah, surprisingly, given as you say the the na- the subject's matter, is that it is positive. It's weird that that's that he's managed that, but that's that's how it's worked out.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: I have nothing else to say about. With no shoes. It's really good. Yeah. Okay. So then we move on to North Country Boy, a song that did all right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, indeed. Um, Reached number four um, when it was released as a single. And one of the notable things about it before we get on to the lyrics and the musical content, well, the song makes makes reference to Itchy and Scratchy. (laughs) It does indeed. And that that doesn't happen often.
0: It doesn't. And again, I've just talked about how I, I I think Tim Burgess is a really poetic lyricist and yeah here, but also the ability to just put some some sort of throwaway reference into really one of the, the cultural zeitgeists of the time.
1: Yeah. And you know again this is one of the songs that he identifies as referencing that that the breakup of that relationship. um do you know what? like it's got such a great intro. The organ is the absolute glue to the song, and yeah. it ends so well, like with a with a little freak out, and I'm all about that.
0: So, what I've written is this song is pure swagger. So you've got the, the guitar licks throughout, the organ is the glue, as you said. The rolling drums, that rhythm, the bass line, which is just constant. It's it's swagger, it is pure. And the video exemplifies this, to borrow a lyrical turn of phrase from Guy Garvey, it is the Simeon stroll that <laughs> exemplifies Mancunian, although they're not from Manchester, as we said, uh, Mancunian exuberance. Great to sing along to, really uplifting.
1: It's brilliant. Yeah, it's, it's just a really good song. It's I've always, always liked it.
0: So something I want to call out, and again, this is on the documentary. So there's, everything we're going to quote really is probably from that documentary because, sadly, there's very little... Wiki is thin. Yeah, exactly. Wiki is thin. Uh, this song nearly didn't make the album at all. So their press officer, Robin Turner, he said they'd recorded One to Another, North Country Boy, and I think it was How High. Mark Collins was going, this is probably going to be the single referring to One to Another. This some of the single and those will be the B-sides. And I was like, are you fucking joking? I just couldn't fathom it. North Country Boy is incredible. And he was like, yeah, but you don't know what else we're writing. And I was like, mate, that is a single. If you stick that on a B-side, you're insane. Quite right.
1: Yeah, spot on. <laughs> <laughs> Great song. Anything, anything more to add? No, it's brilliant. Yeah, it's really good. Okay, so then we move on to Telling Stories. Tom Rollins again, provides uh, drum loops, and you can certainly hear his influence on the start of this song.
0: Oh, God, yes. In 95, Tim Burgess had uh, provided vocals on, well, on really what was the Chemical Brothers' breakthrough single, Life is Sweet, from their debut, Exit Planet Dust. And so to oh, sort of repay the favour, Tom Rowlands, as Kev said, added uh, his support to providing loops to to some of the tracks on this album.
1: Yeah. And has a a strong influence on some of the key songs on this album. Um, What do you think of it?
0: I love telling stories. I think the opening with the acoustics and the sort of swirling synth part, as you said, very chemical with us. I think the way it builds almost to a crescendo before the lyrics kick in i fucking love telling stories i think it's a brilliant brilliant song
1: it's it's a it's a great song i love how um so i'm glad you referenced the acoustic guitar i think it works really well in the mix of the song so you you have the acoustic then it transitions to electric then it goes back to the acoustic and mm-hmm. the drumming is fantastic and it it's a song i've always loved it's yeah. great
0: yeah it is great so it's another one that, even though it's not one that Tim Burgess called out by name, it's another one that I think is about a breakup. The chorus live for the day. I see your heart is empty. I've got plenty. Joe come right with me. I see your head is meant to be cemented. It's true. When the stories that you tell come back to haunt you. So it's to me about the end of a relationship, people being dishonest with each other. And I think the sound of the song Perfectly fit that mood that the lyric evokes, mm-hmm. and it's one of my favorite charlatan songs.
1: Yeah, it's it, it's great, it's it's really well done.
0: Can I add another fun fact, please? Sure, I have played this song at an open mic night in Moulton where Tim Burgess's
1: parents were present. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's so low wattage, it's like
0: fuck I mean... off. <laughs> They both came to me and said how much they enjoyed it.
1: They both clapped politely.
0: <laughs> uh, I did tell her my name was also Tim. <laughs>
1: I'm not going to adopt you. <laughs> fuck off. Have you, ever played,
0: have you ever played telling stories of Tim Birch's parents? No, you haven't. So fuck you.
1: <laughs> okay. I think we should move on to the next song.
0: No, I don't want to move on to the next song. I'm going to keep talking about my moment of glory.
1: <laughs> if that's your moment of glory, then you need to have words. Go on then. Okay, so we move on to an absolute huge song, which Tim has already spoken about one to another. So the riff for it, um, Rob Collins came up with the riff quite a while back uh, prior to the recording and had been kind of messing around with it couldn't really make it work. And then as happened, and we've talked about on many albums, it suddenly clicked. There was some, like, he got it. The band came in and the song was completed very quickly because once it's right, it's right.
0: Yep. So uh, it was the, as I mentioned earlier, it was the first single from the album. So it was released 26th of August, 96. So just over a month after Rob Collins' death, it reached number three in the UK, so it was their biggest ever hit in this country. It also reached number 33 on Kev. The Euro. The Euro. Come on, you can do better than that. <laughs> Fuck's sake, go I on. Was, no, I was waiting for you to come in. No, 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 I want you to do it this time, just on your own. No, go on. No, not doing no All I right, refuse. then, fine. On the <laughs> three, two, one. one, Euro chart, hot, hot 100.
1: 100. <laughs> 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 So Tom Rollins again works on it with the drum loops, which you can hear in it. It's an absolutely huge Huge fucking belting opening. So, and we talked about this on the previous week's Clash, the song that sort of gradually builds you in with the anticipation and then you have the drums and the keys kicking and it's fucking massive and it's got a huge sound to it. And um, The drums are so important to the song. Timber just sounds fucking amazing. And the chorus is so simple, but it works so well. Yeah,
0: this, it just comes like a fucking juggernaut. Yeah. So, as you said... The drum loops, to give it a real sort of hip-hop style groove. The riff is, it's so simple, but it's so, it's so, it just gets into your head. It's insistent. It is, yeah, absolutely. The bass line, which is just one note, it's literally Martin Blunt playing the note of F over and over again, but fucking hell, it just drives it. It's just, it's ferocious is what this song is. Yeah. It is, as you said, Tim Burgess sounds phenomenal, biting snarling his way through the lyrics this is as i said given it's a month after rob collins death this is your perfect way to say we are going fucking nowhere it is a glorious perfect piece of pop music this what a tune
1: yeah the the middle eight is brilliant in terms of, again, how it builds the anticipation for the end of the song and it yeah. kicks back in so uh, well.
0: And that's, sorry, that's another area where you can, you can hear Tom Rowland's influence because you've got the, the band, you know, with the, the crashing drums and cymbals and the guitar. Mm-hmm. And then you've got that sort of, as I say, that great beat, hip-hop beat style thing coming in underneath, which builds the anticipation for when it comes back in. Fucking hell, what a tune this is.
1: And I mean, I I have this written in my notes for how high, but I think it's also relevant here. So I'm gonna br- I'm gonna bring it up here. So Tim Burgess's singing style is really interesting. He kind of, I'm sorry to come out with some a slightly wanky musical term, which is very rare for me. <laughs> um, it goes from kind of a staccato rhythm to like a legato. So it's kind of like there's elements where he sort of it's like he's rapping so particularly toward towards the end yep. like how he sort of as you say you was like spitting spitting the lyrics and it, there's lots of sort of stuff coming out really quickly mm-hmm. and then he has like sort of bits where he's singing it's much slower and that like it's it's really interesting how he how he interprets me songs
0: he is unique as a lyricist and as a vocalist in that way mm-hmm. and yeah it's brilliant it is a glorious song as i've as i've said I just want to read something from John Brooks. So he was the Charlatans drummer. We'll come on to that, very sadly. Uh, Just John Brooks talking about working with Tom Rowlands. He says, watching him in the studio was incredible. I've never seen anyone work like that. He doesn't have any respect for the machines he's operating. He will get them to do what he wants them to do. Anyone has ever uh, heard any of the Chemical Brothers' music or ever seen them perform live, you know exactly what that means. It is, it, I can't describe what they do any better than John Brooks has there.
1: Um, I want to know what he's doing to the machines. <laughs> in he has no respect for them and he does what he wants.
0: He will get them to do what he wants them to do. hmm <laughs>
1: The words are on the paper, that's all I'm saying.
0: <laughs> I think we should move on, Ken.
1: <laughs> okay, that may get cut. <laughs> no, I'd stay there. Okay, so yeah, we, we, there's nothing really more that we can say about one to another. It is a absolute fucking banger.
0: It is. I mean, it's, so the one, the only other thing I'm going to say is it is like if you go to an indie, indie disco and they don't play one to another, you're feeling shortchanged.
1: Very much so. Okay, so we then move on to You're a Big Girl Now. Again, some referencing uh, Mr. Burgess's heartbreak, I would say. Uh, yes, very much so. And again, we talk about tempo changes. It, it works well in terms of it's much simpler after how massive the first four songs have been. Yeah. And it it reminds us, so I noted down, it reminds me of one of the acoustic numbers of the Stones would have, like in the middle of something like Exile on Main Street or (laughs) uh, Let It Bleed. I bet you've got the same thing.
0: (laughs) I can hear the Stones influences, particularly Exile on Main Street. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) I can also hear, you mentioned the Beach Boys earlier, some of the harmonies in this. Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> yes. Again, the, the, um, the pod hive mind working over distance. <laughs> <Ridiculous>. <laughs> so what do you think of it?
0: I really like it. I, I I can't say anything other than what you've said, to be honest with you. It's, um, it's a nice pace change. Yeah. I'm just repeating what you've said. I like you're a big girl. Now it's a good song. Okay so then
1: we move on to how can you leave us probably has something to do with again his his heartbreak but we'll he, he didn't directly say it <laughs> so um, no
0: he didn't uh, sorry no he didn't and again this is it would be an anachronism for it to be about rob Collins' death given what you said that the songs were all written but i certainly think in the aftermath of rob Collins' death that the lyrics take on an added poignancy it's only a gut feeling. I don't want to believe it. How can you leave us? How can you bleed on us? Given the quote I read earlier around mm. what Tim Burgess was saying, his recollections of, of that evening were, yeah, it, it, for me, it takes on an added significance because of that.
1: And ironically, sort of with you sort of referencing that, that his playing drives this song. And the ba- the bass as well is, re- is really important within it. Yep. So for, for me initially I thought it was a bit meh but it improves as it gets to the chorus and then it finishes so strongly.
0: So this is and I said this last week when we go through everything was go loads uh, it's got a as you just said yourself it's got a chorus you can just sing along to belt it out in fact not just sing along to you belt it out
1: which I believe we have done. <laughs> yeah exactly we ha- we have done indeed. Yeah,
0: I I mentioned earlier that when they did Up To Our Hips, it sort of created that sound that would define them for the next two or three albums. This is very much in that mould. It's classic Mark Collins guitar licks throughout it, which never dominate. None of Mark Collins' guitar playing dominates uh, any charlatan song, but it's always there. It's always really proficient. It's always really good. It's always adding something. You've got yet more classic Tim Burgess lyrics, You've got, as you said, a great bass line, which is very simple, but just drives it forward. The Rob Collins piano part is integral to the song. I've always liked uh, How Can You Leave Us. I think it's a really good song. It is clearly an album track. It was never going to be a single, I will say that, but it is a very, very decent album track.
1: Yeah, I can't disagree with that. Okay, so then we move on to Area 51. So the, this song um, came about. Rob Collins was in the studio and essentially laid down most of the song whilst the rest of the band slept and put it put it together. And it absolutely highlights his, his immense talent. Phenomenal! It's a really good instrumental piece. Do you know? Like I'd love to hear the Cams uh, remix it. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I think it would be an absolutely fucking boss piece of work.
0: Absolutely. This is the first time on the album that I can really hear Slime the Family Stone coming through. Mm-hmm. And, okay, so clearly the Charlatans aren't the first band in history to use a Hammond organ player as a prominent part of their sound, Deep Purple being an obvious example that, that comes the doors. to mind. The Doors, yes, exactly. But I would struggle, even within those two iconic acts, to name you a tune that has the Hammond organ as the thing around which a piece of music is developed and is based. This is that. This is, this is, as you said, it's a showcase of Rob Collins talent because it was something he did with the engineer whilst everyone else is in bed. It's just, it's a fucking, it's a work of genius. This is, I'm sorry. It is. It's,
1: it is. It is It is great. I mean, I would, I would argue that um, touch me by the doors. Um, the Rayman I can. I can always, I can never say his name. Ray fella from the from the Doors, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Man's, man's Iraq or something like that. Yeah, like obviously the Hammond organ is at the absolute core of that. But it, it doesn't it doesn't denigrate from your point there. That this is a phenomenal piece of work shown and how, and showcases what a great musician Rob Collins was.
0: Yeah, hundred percent agree. So I saw the Charlatans on the Telling Stories tour. It's the first time I saw them. So this is obviously after Rob Collins passing and I've seen them multiple times since as we'll, as we'll talk about in a bit, but I've seen them play this a couple of times and obviously Tony Rogers takes the lead and he is equally proficient. You, you know, you, you can't tell it's not, do you know what I mean? It, yeah. it, it's testament to Tony Rogers talents actually, that he's able to recreate what Rob Collins did on this, because it would be very easy for them to say, we can't possibly play this live, but they did. And it sounds great.
1: It's not like having Adam Lambert. <laughs> or Paul Rogers. Or, yeah, or the or the fella from Free. yeah.
0: <laughs> Who is Adam Lambert, by the way? Who is he? Apart from the fella that now
1: sings with two members of Queen. I think he won like some kind of American X Factor or American Idol or some some shite like that. And yeah, the uh performs with two members of Queen.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, I just want to say that I respect John Deacon immensely.
1: Yeah, John Deacon Ultra is here.
0: (laughs) Quite so. Area 51 is really, really good.
1: (laughs) Okay. so Can I also say, sorry. (laughs) Every time. (laughs) I know, I know. (laughs) So before we move on
0: from Area 51, uh, we've talked a lot about how proficient Rob Collins playing is. John Brooks deserves a shout out on this because the drumming is incredible on this. It's really good.
1: Which is kind of why, like, obviously, yeah, I highlighted. I would have loved to hear the Kem's remix because yes. the drumming, the drumming's great, and I think if Tom Rowland's got his hands on it, then yeah, yeah, there's there's all kinds of good things to come from that. Definitely okay, and we are absolutely flying here. And um, we move on to How High. Again, it's a single that uh, did very well, so uh, reached number six in the UK charts, and. <sighs> I mean, it absolutely smacks you right in the face like at the start and drags you with it. You are coming with this song no matter what.
0: Oh, God, yeah. I um, have always loved How High. You just try singing this without taking a breath and see how long it takes (laughs) for you to start hyperventilating. It's a live staple of theirs, and rightfully so.
1: Yeah, and I mean, like I talked about it before, obviously, on One to Another, and this is where I made the note about that that style of going from like spitting out, spitting out the lyrics to then more tuneful and more considered for, if want of a better word. It's the juxtaposition
0: between the verses and the choruses. You're absolutely right because like, yeah, it is, it is almost like rapping the way he sings those verses. Cause it's all in one tone mm-hmm. and it's all so fast. It's I've no idea what this song's about, but I don't care. It's again, it's another swaggering, country infused rock song Mm -hmm. three minutes you bounce all the way through it no fuss no solos no extended instrumentals just let's have it and then we're done off you go i fucking love how high
1: yeah, it's it's a bril- it's a brilliant song, and in terms of like like you saying trying to sing along with it without having an asthma attack, the only other song that I can think about that uh, that's akin to that is "Lovely Day" by Bill Withers,
0: or the shouty bit in "Monkey Wrench." Yeah, true. Just continuing with the uh, Mid Cheshire connection, video filmed in Delamere Forest.
1: <laughs> Lovely stuff. <laughs> <laughs> This is a very, very niche episode. <laughs> you can, like, and so Delamere Forest, you can go check out a gruffalo there. <laughs> you can indeed, yeah, yeah. It's lovely, Delamere Forest. Go. Yeah, it's a lovely walk. <laughs> <laughs> Several lovely walks, in fact. If you want to, yeah. Okay, so then we move on to the next song, which is only tea. Then it's. <laughs> do you know what? It's got a great groove to it. Brilliant so you know we talked we talked earlier about um sly and the family stone influence you can hear it here like it's 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 properly funky 100 percent. it's got a great introduction bongos rob collins is keyboard playing and it's so different from everything else on the album
0: yeah it is it is um i can't for the life of me think what it's about <laughs> i mean you just try and decipher these lyrics kevin and tell me what you think so you pack up your bags and leave to what seems like a better dream. It's all right. We're only teething. Only young. Yet, since you came last week to say you're on your way, you don't have to say good luck because I don't need it, babe. I have no idea.
1: You? Um, it's wishing a colleague success in their, in their next venture. <laughs>
0: That'll be it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you said Rob Collins is, yeah, the, that sort of repetitive staccato organ part mm-hmm. is, uh, it's great. I really, really like it. Again, it's it gives you something different in terms of the rhythm, in terms of the groove, in terms of the sound, but it's still got a chorus that just gets its way into your head. Yeah. it's um, I like the charlatans.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the only, the only criticism I can maybe proffer to it is that maybe it goes on a bit too long. But I do really like the freak out at the end.
0: Yeah, I can see what you're saying. It doesn't vary mm-hmm. very much. And so, yeah, okay. But I really like it all the way through. So, you know.
1: Yeah. Okay. So then we move on to get on it. Someone been listening to Dylan. <laughs> I mean, you've absolutely lashed, uh, Nick, that um, harmonica part from, from Dylan. Yep. And I like how that um, the harmonica motif is returned to throughout the song, really. Yes. Um, it, it, it works really well. It's a dead nice song. It's got a great sound to it. So I love
0: this. And I think we're perhaps doing it a bit of an injustice just talking about the harmonica part. This song has got three or four movements.
1: Yeah. Well, I was about... So... I was going to say within my notes, um, is it's a proper cure attack of a song because you've got the Dylan opening. Then you get this funky freak out in the second half after the middle eight.
0: So I think cure it's egg is perhaps doing it a disservice actually because I don't think there's any weak parts on the song. Um, the second movement, the sort of funky bit, is almost a reprise of Only Teething with this staccato organ bit.
1: Which I'm okay with.
0: Exactly. Then you've got the breakdown and the build from that into what is a colossal epic ending, which brings all the same ferocity that one to another had. God, it's fucking brilliant. I've o- I've only ever seen them play this live once, the first time I saw them. And I wish they would play it more often because I fucking love Get On It. I think it's a brilliant, brilliant song. I love... I love an epic song. We know this. I love a song that has different acts, different movements. This is that. It's great. More please.
1: Well, so we start, we start off in Bob Dylan country. We then mosey into, into funk, funkadelic. Mm-hmm. And then we, fin- we finish off with the Stones. All good things. Quite right. Good stuff. Yeah, it's great. Really like it. So then we finish the album with Rob's theme. And the sound of the child on there is actually Rob Collins as a child. He there was like a there was an audio track that he brought into the studio and he was sort of messing around with yeah. that they incorporated into this posthumously.
0: It was a recording made by Zanti, apparently, of Rob when he was three years of age. So from, from Tim Burgess. We found something Rob had been working on. He'd made this bit of music with the second engineer. And he just put it together with him talking and saying all this really sweet stuff we put it on the end of the album because we didn't know whether he was intending to put it on the album or not, or whether he was just making it, not knowing what his future was going to be. And it's a really fitting tribute to Rob Collins.
1: So I'm going to be the bastard. Oh, go on. I'm certainly not criticizing its inclusion on the album. You know, it should be there, but it doesn't really go anywhere. It doesn't really do anything. And it like it's not it's not a criticism to say that that it's on there. I understand why and it's a it's a lovely tribute. I just don't think that it actually does like musically if I'm just looking at it for what it is, then it doesn't really do anything for me
0: Hard disagree mate sorry I really like this okay, I think it's a really good way to end the album actually not just as a tribute to Rob Collins, but it's actually i think it does give you something else it's a nice it's a lovely laid back groove. To ease you out of what you've just heard. Something I've criticised a lot in the past, actually, and rightfully so. This wouldn't be out of place on a Ministry of Sound chill-out sessions album, (laughs) apart from the fact that it is significantly better than most of the stuff that ended up on there. (laughs) I think it does have a place on here. And I say not just for sentimentality. I think it adds something, you know, it allows you that time to recover, if you like, from what you've just had on Get On It. So, no, I disagree with you. I understand what you're saying. But
1: I don't agree with you. Okay, fair, fair enough. As I say, it didn't do much for me. But you know, aren't you the shit bag? Yes, I am. <laughs> I, I am going to be this week's designated shite. <laughs> so, in terms of, in terms of the legacy. So, firstly, that's the end of the album, and in terms of the legacy, it was their most commercially successful album. Like, so telling stories, which we didn't really talk about. Like that was released as a single, reached number sixteen. The album was number one here. It also sold significantly in, again, Scandinavia, so Norway and Sweden, so reached number 37 in Norway, number 35 in Sweden. Oh,
0: the Icelandics, they they weren't so keen. They were still all about breath.
1: Yeah, the, the, and the Danes wanted fuck all to do with it. But <laughs> they, were, they were more into their um, hard house at the time. <laughs> I don't know if they were, but... Like, Got nothing. Yeah. <laughs> They love like love scout's house in um
0: in uh um Brondby.
1: <laughs> I was gonna go Aarhus <laughs> in the middle of our street.
0: Hey, there hey. you go. And that is what's gonna make that stay in the show. Well done.
1: <laughs> um so yeah, it was it was massively successful with for them. Um it really established them as a staple certainly on the festival circuit and obviously it allowed the band a, a postscript to carry on after after Rob's death yeah um yeah. unfortunately for the charlatans their continued um poor fortunes did carry on so the next the next two albums did well which was obviously the compilation Melting Pot, which we talked about. And then Us and Us Only did really well.
0: I did Wonderland in 2002. So Us and Us Only in 99 and Wonderland 2002, they both got to number two in the UK.
1: Yeah. So yeah, like the, whilst they, they had success, the, unfortunately their accountants fucked off with all of their money. Half a million dollars. And was convicted for fraud. But obviously, wasn't the best for the for the band. Not only
0: convicted before, but he haven't paid in their taxes either. So, in an interview with the New York Times in 2015, Tim Burgess said, "We were playing huge festivals at the time, but we had to forfeit most of the money." And it doesn't end there. Their tales of woe do not end there. Sadly,
1: unfortunately, not.
0: So, um, as I mentioned earlier, Tim Burgess had relocated to LA uh, in 1998 uh, until 2010. And um, whilst he was living there, he basically became addicted to alcohol and cocaine. <laughs> In 2006, he quit cold turkey, but basically overcompensated <laughs> and became addicted to
1: Diet Coke. <laughs> Drinking thirteen cans of Diet Coke a day. I mean, he was properly having a Diet Coke break. Did he hire like the the sexy gardener fella like to stand outside and cut his grass, and that's why he was drinking so so much Diet Coke?
0: I mean, you couldn't have uh, criticised him if he did. <laughs> Just saying. In two thousand and one, Tony Rogers the organ player that they'd uh, recruited to replace Rob Collins. He was diagnosed with testicular cancer. Thankfully, fortunately, he uh, recovered um, and is still with the band. However, more tragically, in 2010, John Brooks, the drummer, during a, a show in Philadelphia, he suffered a seizure on stage. At the time, Tim Burgess said, It was like he was frozen in time. We thought it was just dehydration. Sadly, it wasn't just dehydration. He was actually suffering with a brain tumour. He was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And in August, 2013, aged just 44, he very sadly died. I mean, despite that, as I said at the start of last week's show, they're still going. Amazingly, they've been through all that. Yeah, exactly. In May of 2018, they played a run of relatively small shows, uh, but iconic shows in Northwich. You and I were there on opening night. It was a fantastic show. It was. They have also played two sellout tours of arenas in the UK with co-headlining with James. They are about to embark on another UK tour in November of this year. And yet again, I will be going to see them. So they are one of Britain's most resilient bands. They have maintained a career over 30 years. Yeah. Uh, so the, the legacy of this album, again, as we said with the Manics, it gave them that bedrock to be one of the most resilient and long lasting acts uh, in the British music scene. And I think you and I would both say that we are delighted that that is the case because we have seen them several times.
1: Very much so. Okay. Okay. So should we look at the reviews then? Yes, let's. So, as you said, and as we talked about when we did the top drums, it was largely critically well-received. Four and a half stars in all music, four out of five in the Rolling Stone. Guardian only gave it three. Well, you know unfortunately i i don't have any particular quotes from um the publications unless unless you do um because it's they're quite hard to get hold of so i've got a couple i've got a
0: couple so from the rolling stone at the time jason cohen said the opener with no shoes is all hungrily exuberant vocals over whimsical guitar crunch and turntable scratching i mean i don't hear any turntable in it but okay both that and the joyous North Country Boy stand in poignant contrast to the real life circumstances of the making of telling stories. While the noirish, understated Rob's theme serves as the record's coder, Colin's real epitaph is the May Ray Manzarek come Jimmy Smith organ grease on Area 51. The charlatans scramble up industrial hip hop soul with spir- spirited, melodic 60s rock influences but they never let the postmodernism detract from the base simplicity of well-crafted songs and unabashed rocking. I mean, it's very verbose, but, you know, I think it's well-written.
1: Yeah, but he'd largely, largely gets it.
0: Apart from its turntable scratch and stuff on With No Shoes, because, no. Yeah. And then, just from all music, our friend Stephen Thomas Erlewine Uh, He said, "Telling Stories is another collection of classicist rock and roll spiked with dance beats, much like any other Charlatans album. And like any other Charlatans album, it doesn't quite hold together, falling apart with instrumentals and ill-conceived songs towards the end. On the whole, though, Telling Stories is more consistent than the earlier records, and the best songs showcase the band at its strongest. More than anything, that's a fitting salute to Collins. Um, sorry, Stephen, for once, I disagree almost entirely with what you said there.
1: Hmm, interesting. I'm not as not as opposed to what you were saying as you.
0: Oh, that is interesting. I, in what way? <laughs> oh, I'm going to get into this now. You you know, you've, uh, let's, let's, let's have a fight.
1: <laughs> I mean, like, I, I don't think, I don't think what he's saying is unfair.
0: Hmm. <laughs> uh, okay, well, um. We should do best song, worst song, I guess. Yeah. So
1: what's your best song, worst song?
0: All right. Okay. I'm going to do my worst song first. It's a tough choice again, because I'm struggling to pick a song I don't like. There isn't a song I don't like on this album, actually. I'm going to go with You're a Big Girl now, and it's purely because it's not as sing-alongy as the other tracks on this album. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have an obvious hook like the other tracks on the album obviously with the exception of the instrumentals. Uh, so yeah, whilst I feel harsh saying it, I've got to pick a weakest track and it's going to be, you're a big girl now. Um, the, the, the best song is the obvious choice. It's one to another. It's glorious. It's bombastic. It's frenzied. It is the most remarkable piece of music on both of these albums we've been through. It's a wonderful piece of music. And, um, I adore it, so that's the best song for me. How about you?
1: So my least favorite song. Unfortunately, I'm going to be the shit, and it is Rob's theme.
0: You fucker!
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm a bastard. As I, as I said, it just it just doesn't do anything for me. And yeah, I can't disagree with your choice of best song because it is bombastic, semi fantastic.
0: <laughs> Don't be shaggy into it. <laughs>
1: Here we go <laughs> roo, roo. <laughs> yeah it's 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 a brilliant song it's it's so good yeah I've, I've nothing more to add to what you to what you've and what we've also uh, already rhapsodized about it
0: okay good stuff it's probably time to get a score in there mate.
1: okay so as as is traditional it was your choice for the clash uh-huh. so you go first second on the um on the last one
0: Yeah, okay, so everything must go. I adore this album. uh, It will be no surprise to anyone that listened to last week's show. Listening to it again transported me right back to 1996 and what seemed to be a year of endless summer. I'm trying to be objective about this. There's not a single song that I dislike on the album, and there are two or three absolute classics. It isn't perfect, but it more than stands its ground against any album released in this area. I mean, so th- something I didn't say last week, and I think Bear's saying so I've said a few times before, I, I am a very, very amateur guitarist and singer. James Dean Bradfield made me want to be a frontman. Watching that 9x gig all over again is like fucking hell. It, eight out of 10. 8 out of 10, I really, really like Everything Must Go, and as I said, it stands up against anything else released of that time, 8 out of 10. How about you?
1: So for me, um, very similar to, to you, the summer of 96, in my memory, the everyday was dead sunny, having a boss all the time. Mm. Um, yeah, And Listening back to this album, like I'd not listened to Everything Must Go for a while, and I'm glad that I didn't because I came at it relatively freshly and I I had an absolute fucking ball listening to it again. I struggled to find a weak song on it. So nine out of 10. Poof.
0: Wow. Okay. There you go. Fair enough. I'm surprised you went as high as nine, not because of the quality of the album, but because of the two of us, I have always spoken more highly of the Mannix.
1: I do like. I've I've always I've always loved the Mannix, but I've not been as effusive in my in my praise of them. But listening to this album back, as I say, I like. I was really struggling to find something I didn't like about it. So yeah,
0: fair enough. Okay, uh, all right then. Telling stories. I mean, it's got it's so everything must go. Get seventeen. So telling stories is going to have to go some to beat that. Yeah. Uh but it's not unheard of. You know, we have a 19 and a half in our rankings. So and, and it would have been 20 but one of us is a shit house. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh what are you going to go on telling stories?
1: So telling stories it starts really strongly. You know, it, there's that's a hell of a run of songs again with no shoes, north country boy, telling stories, one to another. That's a run and a half that And, you know, One to Another is one of the the best indie songs recorded in the 90s. It is. How High's Great. There's so much much great going on there. And they're a band that I really, really love. There's some bits that I don't like about it. So I'm going to come down with an 8 out of 10. It's a really, really good album. But I think Everything Must Go is better.
0: Okay, you've... um you've put me in a quandary here. I said the charlatans are one of my favorite bands. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, they are the band I have seen most often live and I'm going to see them again in a few weeks time. And I cannot wait. I think they are brilliant. And a band that's been together for that long, even despite lineup changes, enforced lineup changes. They're so tight and they're so t- anyway, sorry, I'm rambling. Um, Despite the themes of this album, and I'm not talking about Rob Collins' death, I'm talking about the, the theme, most of the songs on this album, in fact, well, I would argue that all of the songs on this album that have lyrics are about the end of a relationship, are about a breakup. Despite that, this album never, ever fails to put me in a good mood. We talked a lot last week about how remarkable an achievement it was for the Manics to produce an album that was so commercially accessible yet still maintained their ethos of brutal, politicised lyrics. I think it is arguably uh, equally impressive an achievement of the Charlatans to, in the midst of this explosion of 60s revisionism and 60s revivalism is a better phrase, sorry, to produce an album which is so clearly influenced by American folk and country music and blues, but yet fits so perfectly within everything else that was coming out at the time. It's just, it's incredible. There's not a single song I don't like. Again, there are two or three all-time classics in here. As you said, and as I said, one to another, is one of the greatest indie rock songs ever put to record. It stands up there with things like I'm the Resurrection, with Cigarettes and Alcohol, Rock and Roll Star, it absolutely does. I have come back to this album again and again and again and again, and it's not even my favourite Charlatans album. The Charlatans is my favourite Charlatans album. Can I give it a 9 out of 10? No. Can I give it a 9 out of 10? Uh. No, I can't. I'm gonna. I. I'm happy that Everything Must Go is going to win, but at the same time, that's tinged with disappointment. Eight out of ten. I, I can't split these two personally. I love them both equally, but at the same time, I think it's probably right that Everything Must Go wins. So yeah, I'm going eight out of ten.
1: It's a it's a fair decision. Like it's it's a, it's a tough call, and I did debate uh, my scoring for telling stories, but. Um, I think I think we've come out with the right with the right decision.
0: Yeah, through gritted teeth, I have to agree with you. So telling stories, we have scored sixteen out of twenty. And everything must go. We have scored seventeen out of twenty. So both really solid scores. Both really solid scores. And there will be people screaming down the microphone going, but you only gave Morning Glory 14 and a half. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Both of these albums are better than Morning Glory. So if you don't agree with us, absolutely fine. But it's our podcast, so tough shit.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So that brings our Britpop season to a close. We will return, I'm sure, to Britpop at a later point.
0: Oh, God. Yeah, there's
1: no doubt. Yeah. But we're going to move on to something different. And this is an idea that that I had. So we're going to do some city clashes. So explain what you mean by
0: city clashes.
1: So what we're going to do is we're going to look at bands from the same city and clash them off. So there's a myriad of different ones that we can do. That our opening one will be Portishead's Dummy Ooh. versus Massive Attack's Protection.
0: Oh, he's got Protection. That's a bold choice. <laughs> That's just made it very difficult that is. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Oh, there you go. Obviously, there are loads of links between the two. The the sound like the trip hop movement from they're both from Bristol. So yeah, there's there's loads of links between the two. So that's what we're doing next.
0: Exciting. I can already think that's going to be a tough call for me to decide between those two as well. So uh great mm-hmm. choices, those, Kev. Well done. Okay, But yeah, that's where we're going next. We're going to do a say famous musical cities. And um, from anyone in the UK, well, not just the UK, because these bands had, had international success. But yeah, from, from anyone who was a fan of music in the 90s, Bristol was a very uh, was a real keystone. Uh, great choices. Looking forward to that. Uh, okay, so I guess the only order of business remaining, Kev, it's your Twitter calls. Off you go.
1: So... Um... If you want to um, find alternatives to taking a uh, medically tried-out vaccine, you could try sheep dewormer or Invermectin. And you can find lots of information about that from Bellens on Twitter. Don't try that.
0: <laughs> can I be clear? Right, that's really funny. Do not take fucking horse or sheep dewormer. Just get the fucking vaccine. Right, go on.
1: <laughs> Whilst um, looking at shite like that, you could also check out our Twitter at Clash Album. If you're a fan of carefully curated, well-crafted quality content, then you could check out our Insta, at Clash Album. Or if you're resolutely old school, you can go to our email and send us an email, um, albumclash at gmail.com.
0: Boom. There you go. Thank you very much, as always, for listening. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Get involved. Leave ratings, leave reviews, all that stuff. So for next week, I'm going to be taking us through uh, Portishead's debut album, Dummy. And for the week after, Kev, you're going to be going through...
1: So I'll be taking us through Massive Attack's second album, Protection.
0: There you go. Okay, uh, until then, this has been Album Clash. I've been
1: Tim. I've been Kev.
0: Take care now. Ta-ra.
1: ta Have a good one.